uh, we're going to get back to the Bible survey tonight, and uh, we've uh, got up to Thessalonians, so we're actually going to do both of them, they're short, short letters, so um, we'll sort of like dive in, so um, now obviously you'll, uh, you'll remember that uh, Greece was divided by the Romans into two provinces, um, there was the northern uh, province, which was Macedonia, and then Achaia, which was, was the south. And uh, Thessalonica was up in the north in Macedonia. Um, still there today. My parents still have their love affair with Greece. Every year they go to Thessaloniki. Um, and it, it was, it's 80 miles southwest of Philippi. And then it was the largest city in Macedonia. So it was a big place. It was an important provincial center. Now, Paul planted the church there with Silas while he was on his second missionary journey. And um, he'd actually been um, in, in the south um, and uh, having, you know, sort of like having, you know, sort of like fleeing away from persecution. And uh, in, in Acts 17 and 18, you can read about how he gets to Thessaloniki and uh, plants a church there. Now, the letters, the, there are two, and they're spaced by about six months. So there's about six months between the first and the second one, okay? Um, Paul wrote them from Corinth, and best date is around... AD 51. So in actual fact, these letters are among the very earliest of the New Testament writings. Um, a lot in them is to do with the end times, dealing with eschatology, because of false teaching that had got in the church there. And also there's a big emphasis, the, um, the Thessalonians were being persecuted, and so there's a big emphasis there on encouraging them because of the persecution um, and uh, as we as we go through it we'll we'll, we'll see some of the false teaching uh, it all surrounded the rapture and the second coming and it even appears um, that the the Christians in the church had actually stopped working uh, you know so there were people actually being idle I, I guess they're kind of thinking that Rapture could be any time, so why bother to get a job or anything like that? So they're actually being idle and sponging off of people, and we'll, we'll see how Paul has to uh, deal with that. Okay, so, so first of all, 1 Thessalonians, and uh, in, in chapter 1, um, starts off from who it's from, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So Timothy and Silas were with Paul in Corinth uh, when Paul wrote this. And, you know, in effect, Paul was saying this is from us, not just from him, but uh, from Silas and Timothy as well. And uh, as always, he opens his uh, letter by wishing them grace and peace, which was very much the salutation that uh, he, he favoured. And uh, he, he said that he, Silas and Timothy, were always thanking God for the Thessalonians, um, giving thanks for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. So there's a little, little three-point sermon just waiting for someone to grab onto it there. Okay, He thanks them for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. And he, he reminds them that they're loved and chosen by God. And uh, he, he reminds them how they receive the gospel, not only in words, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. So it wasn't a question here of people just kind of being convinced by the intellectual content of a message. You know, evangelism, it was these people, they'd come to know Jesus. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. And they had come to know the Lord and, and their lives had been changed. And Paul reminds them how they became imitators of him. Uh, it's a remarkable thing. Paul could say, you know, become imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's ultimately what being examples to each other is all about. And he said that they did uh, become imitators of Paul. The Greek word for imitator is mimic, or it's a word we get mimic from. They learned how to copy him, the way he lived, the way he was. And uh, the, the same with Paul's companions as, as well. And, um, 
and and he he gives thanks for for the way that they welcomed the message, even though becoming Christians did mean suffering for them. They 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 were being persecuted. But Paul reminds them that it was also that they received with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And uh, so in, in some ways, the harder it is, the more joy the Holy Spirit wants to actually impart to his people. And then Paul tells them that, that they had actually become a model for believers all over Greece. You know, the, the, these guys were you know, getting a little bit well-known. Uh, you know, I don't know whether they had a website up or something like that. Possibly not. They weren't that ahead of their time. But, you know, however it happened, probably Paul bragging on them wherever he went. But, you know, certainly other churches in Greece were encouraged and, you know, these, these guys had become a model for them. And, um, and, and he says that, that both the gospel and their faith had become known everywhere. So that was quite, quite a testimony this, uh, this, this church had. And, and then Paul reminds them how they had turned from idols to the true and living God. And, uh, and that obviously altogether that they were waiting for the coming of Jesus. And Paul says that, that when Jesus does come, that he will rescue believers from the coming wrath. And, you know, we'll move on and obviously, the, you know, the coming wrath. Particularly thinking there, Paul's going to deal with the end times, that the great tribulation and, you know, the eventual great white throne judgment on unbelievers. But one way or the other, you know, Jesus will come and he will rescue believers. And those who aren't believers will suffer his, uh, his judgment. Then in chapter 2, he moves on and he, he reminds them of... Um, his time with them, and, uh, and, and, and how he and his companions had proven to them that they were of pure motive. Uh, wherever Paul went, uh, people would come in afterwards and cast aspersions on his character, accuse him of this, accuse him of that, accuse him of the other, all the time trying to undermine the ministry God had given. Often these were other believers, often other, you know, sort of leaders. And, uh, you know, Paul talks about the, the super apostles who wandered around, you know. I mean, he, he didn't sort of say that they weren't believers, but there are always people that they wanted to muscle in on what Paul had done. They wanted to undermine him. And uh, so, so very often Paul had to remind people of the facts of the matter, you know, sort of like how he actually was with them and that they were of pure motives and that they weren't con men or anything like that. And whatever Paul did was wrong, um, you know, sort of like if, if, if he accepted money from people where he was, he was a con man. If he didn't accept money from them, he had a hidden agenda. Do you see what I mean? Whatever Paul did, people impugned his motives and managed to get an accusation out of it. And so Paul just reminds them that the time that he and his team spent with them just proved to them that, that they were of clear motive and just there to, um, there to, to, to help them and, and to serve the Lord. And he said that they had endured persecution in Philippi and then again in Thessalonica. So, you know, sort of like it was persecution that, that drove Paul to them in the first place and then Paul was persecuted while he was there. So the point is he's saying, look, there's nothing in this for me. You know, if, uh, you know, if this was just me wanting to make money or have a great life or something like that, what all these people want to, you know, cast you know, all these doubts on my motives. He says, well, here's the proof. Wherever I go, I'm persecuted. And I was persecuted when I was with you. So, I mean, I'm certainly not in this, uh, you know, for anything uh, personal in, in that sense. And then he reminds them that, that him and his team, they supported themselves. Um, they waived the right to be provided for by the Thessalonians. As apostles, they had that right. Um, but as Paul did in one or two other places, he waived it in that situation and he wouldn't receive any money from them. And, uh, you know, because Paul knew when it was good to do that and he knew when it was okay to be supported by whatever church he was with. So uh, in their instance, you know, sort of like they hadn't received money, they'd supported himself, therefore any, any accusations that Paul just in it for the money was obviously patently ridiculous. And uh, he, he said that, while they were with them, that they'd been gentle among them 
like a mother with her children. Now, just bear this in mind. We're going to see various uh, family allusions here. So he said, you know, that when we were with you, we were gentle like a mother with her children. And, and just, you know, saying that we, we were just delighted to be able to share our lives with you. That's what it was all about. There wasn't anything other than that. It was serving the Lord and it was sharing our lives with you. And he said that, that obviously you knew us, our lives were holy, righteous, and blameless while we were amongst you. And, uh, and then he changes uh, sort of picture here, and then he says, and like a father with his own children, we encouraged and comforted you. So he said, we were gentle like a mother, and like a father, we were encouraging and comforting. And he said, urging them on to live lives worthy of God. And, in, you know, in, interesting there, just a little bit of, you know, the gender differences that come out there, you know, the gentleness of the female, of the mother, and then the father urging on to live lives worthy, comforting, encouraging. And if you think about it, encourage, it's to make brave, to make bold. Uh, comforting, uh, comforting doesn't always mean what we think it means. Uh, on the bio tapestry, there's that, that famous bit in it where it says, King Harold comforteth the soldier, and he's got his spear up his backside. The origin of the word comfort was to spur on, to, to, to push forward. And, uh, you know, so that Paul, the gentleness on the one hand, and yet the urging on, the driving them on to, to be living lives worthy of, of God. And, and then he, he, he returns to, to praising them, because that's part of what encouragement is, you know, not, not just saying when someone's doing wrong, but when they're doing right. And, and he, he praises them again for their response to the gospel, and especially in the light of the fact that they were being persecuted. Um, you know, I mean, there'd be a big difference, wouldn't there, between, say, their response to the gospel in that sense and ours. I mean, our response to the gospel was wonderful as well. But how much more wonderful was theirs? Because immediately they were being persecuted. I mean, okay, when we got saved, we lost friends and stuff like that. Well, quite right too. You know, you're supposed to. But the point is, these guys were sometimes in danger of their lives, and that's that's a whole new ball game. So Paul says that 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 was just so wonderful. And he said, but the churches down in Judea. That, that they're suffering as well. So he says it wasn't just you all over the place. And, and he said, in particular, you're suffering at the hands of the Jews. And he says they killed Jesus and the prophets. And he said it, it was them who had driven Paul and his team out as well. So, so Paul says, yeah, look, the Jews are really persecuting you. They're really being awful to you, but remember, that's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to the prophets as well. And he says, Israel in every way is hostile to the evangelization of the Gentiles. So it's not only that, you know, that Israel was up in arms that the Jews hated the Christians, you know, because Jews were getting converted. They even hated the fact that Gentiles were getting converted. Now, that was ridiculous because Jews didn't give a monkeys about Gentiles. Gentiles were dogs. Gentiles were people who were there to make money from, but outside of that, you don't have anything to do with them. And the Jews were getting all uptight because Gentiles were becoming Christians. And, uh, you know, so, so it wasn't just that the Jews were, you know, trying to prevent Jews from getting saved. They actively wanted to stop Gentiles from becoming Christians as well. And, of course, some of these people were actually Jewish Christians. Remember, the circumcision party, they were actual believers. And remember, their false teaching was saying that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, they've also got to become a Jew. They've got to submit to the law of Moses. They've got to be circumcised. So the point is, you know, that even some of the Jews who got saved still, still had this, this very wrong attitude and, uh, you know, was sort of really against the spreading of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And Paul says, look, God's judgment is upon them. And of course it was, wasn't it? Because, um, you know, sort of like Israel was cut out of the vine and replaced by the largely Gentile church. And of course, although it hadn't happened at this point, uh, we know that the, the great AD 70 judgment was about to come on Israel when the Jews were going to be virtually destroyed. And that was God's judgment coming on them for rejecting Jesus and for persecuting um, the Christians. 
And, uh, and having done that, Paul now expresses regret that he can't be with them more often. Um, in actual fact, he said that they were torn from them. So the point is, when Paul had to leave, for whatever reason, it wasn't because he wanted to. He says, we were torn away from you. And interestingly, when he says that torn away, the Greek word there is the Greek word for orphaned. You know, and he said it was like you became orphaned because, you know, so we've had mother, we've had father, and now he says that they've been orphaned. And so, you know, Paul's heart was that he really wanted to be with them more than he could be. And even when he was with them, he wasn't with them as long as he wanted to be. Something tore him away, okay, so that his time with them was uh, cut short. And then he goes on to say, and, you know, a bit of a strange thing, this, but he says that despite efforts to return, and he says, I've kept trying to come back to you, but he says, every time Satan has hindered us and prevented it. So... Well, goodness, you know, round, you know, round there to Satan. I suppose he gets around here and there, but of course the point is we've already got the knockout, so it doesn't matter that much. But he was saying that, that I was torn away from you and I didn't want to be, and I keep trying to come back, but every time I do, Satan prevents it. But he says, look, nevertheless, he says, you're, you're my joy, you're my crown, and he says that we will glory over you in the presence of Jesus when, when he comes. And um, in chapter 3, he said that, that at least he'd been able to send Timothy to them. So even though Paul hadn't been able to get back in the interim, Timothy had been. And he said, I was able to send Timothy to you to strengthen and encourage you in the trials that you're all experiencing. And of course, it's always so good to have someone coming from the outside to help. And remember, Timothy, you know, was, you know, they looked on him as, as you know, as being an apostolic worker with, with Paul. And, and Paul says that they were destined for these trials. Destined. Um, we're destined for trouble as Christians. We're, we're destined to be persecuted. Whatever form it takes, fundamentally persecution is sharing the suffering of Jesus. And if you want to define the suffering of Jesus, it's that he was despised and rejected by men. Wherever Jesus went, he was rejected. So the point is that if we're going to really follow him, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the point is, I mean, we're blessed in this country that no one's, you know, actually able to, you know, sort of damage us physically. Um, you know, but the point is, fundamentally, we have been destined to, to lose friends. We, we've been destined to find that we have enemies because we follow Jesus. People who otherwise would be our friends, otherwise would be, as it were, good and nice to us, but because we follow Jesus, they turn against us and remain against us. And Paul says, look, you are destined for this. But he said, I prepared you in advance. I told you that you would be persecuted. And of course, this was one of the, you know, the things that the early church really, really did you know, sort of teach people. They said, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. And, and then Paul tells them that he'd, he'd been fearful lest Satan had got in amongst them and rendered their work amongst them useless. Now, I mean, I, I don't know, is that Paul worrying? Is, is, is that Paul not having enough faith? But the point is, Paul loved these people and, and, and he really was concerned. He, he expressed that, didn't he, to the Galatians. The Galatians were being influenced by all the false teaching that the circumcision party were doing, you know, all the legalism coming in. Um, and Paul says, I, I fear for you, you know, that I've betrothed you to Christ, and, and now, now Satan's coming in like he did with Eve, and he says, I fear that, you know, that you're being, you know, deceived. And he says, who has bewitched you at one point? So Paul, Paul laboured. Paul had great concern over that he knew that the greatest danger that any church faces ultimately is being deceived by Satan. It's false teaching getting in. And, and Paul often expresses this to the, you know, to the churches, how it, it bothered him. It really did bother him, all right? And he said that's why he had sent Timothy to them to get a report. 
he wanted to be reassured that uh, everything was, was, was okay. And he says, but now Timothy has returned, and he says he's brought the news that you're still growing in faith and love, that you still have good memories of me and my companions. You see, because remember, people are always trying to turn the churches against Paul. You see, so Paul would plant a church, spend time, and then when he left, the false teachers, these other Christians who wanted to muscle in, would come in and try and turn them against Paul with, you know, like whispering campaigns and accusations and stuff like that. Never anything with substance, never any evidence, right? but just the whispering campaign. And Paul says, well, that hasn't happened, and, and, and I'm glad. And he says, and that, in turn, has encouraged me in my persecutions. And Paul and Silas, we're being persecuted where we are. So that's really encouraging to us that you're still, you know, 100% in regards to us. And, and he, he says that he continues to pray that they'll get to the Thessalonians again. And he said and that when we do, that our love can overflow for each other and everyone. And uh, he says, because look, our love overflows for you. We, we have nothing in our heart for you but love. And then he prays that God will strengthen their hearts so that they'll be blameless and holy when Jesus comes with his holy ones. Now, obviously, there's a reference there that when Jesus does return, obviously, he'll bring the, you know, the dead, you know, the depart, all the dead believers with him in glory. He'll, he'll bring them with him. And, of course, these allusions to the second coming all the time in this letter, because that's, that's where the false teaching is getting in amongst them. And so Paul's all the time kind of, you know, sort of getting the, you know, the truth in there. And then, then we move into... Um, chapter 4, and he urges them to continue living as he had previously instructed them when he was there. He said, keep doing that. And he said, those instructions were given to you on the authority of Jesus himself. Remember, Paul was an apostle. His teaching was infallible. Written down, it becomes the New Testament. And so he says, look, that was the authority of Jesus himself. So keep living according to how I instructed you. And he said, look, God's will for you is that you are sanctified. Sanctified, set apart from God, being set free from the power of sin. And he says that they're to avoid sexual immorality. Um, you know, the ancient world was very immoral, more so than our country is now. I mean, our, we're, you know, we're sliding downhill, but we're not really as bad as you know, the Greek, <laughs> the Greeks were then, you know, believe me, you know, we're still pretty, pretty good compared to them. But the point is, these guys came from a very immoral background. And Paul's saying, look, you know, there must be absolutely, you know, sort of none of that um, among you. You, you. you mustn't be like the heathen in any way at all. And he reminds them that God is going to punish the immoral and that those who reject what he's saying, they're, they're not just rejecting man, they're rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit. So he says, obviously, for those who do live immoral lives, there they're, are going to be, um, you know, they're going to be in trouble eventually. And he, he tells them that their brotherly love is excellent um, and, and that in that respect, they've obviously really been taught by the Lord. And he says that, that, that your love um, you know, for all the brothers is, is, is known, you know, throughout Macedonia. So again, he really praises them for, you know, the way that they've come on in, uh, you know, in those particular areas. And then he, he, he urges them even more so. He says, you're doing great, but now do even better. So he urges them on more and more. And, and he tells them, and this is, you know, this is, this doesn't fit if you believe so much of the Christianity we're surrounded by. He says, their ambition should be to lead a quiet life. And in that, you know, that, we wouldn't say that to be, you know, we're supposed to be out there doing exploits for God. He said, no, your ambition should be to lead a quiet life. And he says, to mind your own business. That's a powerful testimony, that is. And, and he says to work, 
because obviously there's this problem with people who are idle, and of course, if you're not occupied, then you become a busybody, okay? So he says, look, you should want to lead a quiet life, you know, live a holy life, a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, um, avoid idleness. And he says, so that outsiders will respect you. And he says, and then you won't need to be dependent on anybody, okay? So, so, so that's real kind of, you know, that, I think that's good. Lead a quiet life. It's not what we accomplish for the Lord that he's bothered about. It's the lives that we lead. It's that godliness. It's that testimony that we, we have amongst those with whom we relate over years and years and years, so that they can see our lives and, you know, and know that God is with us. Right, now, he, he moves on now. now I'm actually going to start reading some of this. And um, he, he deals with... Um, you know, sort of like some of the false teaching going round. So I'm actually going to read from verse 13 to 18. And he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That's, that's a reference to believers dying. All right, they didn't die, as it were, they fell asleep. Okay. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I used to think that was a prophecy that revival was going to come through the Anglican church, but I realized that wasn't true. And the dead will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, obviously, this is very much a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 15. And what Paul is saying, you know, that basically at the rapture, when Jesus returns, he will bring with him all those who have died. Now, they're with the Lord in paradise, in heaven at the moment. Every Christian who has died is with the Lord in paradise, in heaven. Quite conscious, quite with him. But they don't have a body. They're spirits. So in Hebrews, um, the writer talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. They're in a, you know, an interim state because, of course, we aren't spirits. We're human beings. We're meant to be physical. But when a Christian dies at the moment, they go to be with the Lord and they're without a body. So when Jesus comes back at the rapture, he will bring all of them and they will get their glorified bodies when Jesus kind of gets to the outer atmosphere, okay? And then every believer on the face of the earth will literally ascend up to meet him in the air and their bodies will be transformed, okay? Because obviously they'll still actually be alive. And this, this, this word rapture, uh, comes from this, this phrase in verse 17 when it, it talked about caught up, caught up. And the, the, um, in, in the Latin translation of the Bible, and of course our, our language has a relationship to that, the, the, the word for caught up was rapio, and that's why we get the word rapture. And it means a, a grabbing up. It's, if, if I you know, dropped a coin on the floor and I reached down and picked it up, that coin would be raptured. That's what it is. And so it's literally talking about the fact that when Jesus returns at the rapture, that all the believers who are already with him in glory will be there with him and they'll get glorified bodies and all the believers alive at the time when he does come their bodies will be transformed. And Paul deals with that um, in 1 Corinthians 15 in more detail. So their bodies at that time will be glorified. Okay. Now, in chapter 5, we move on, and he's still dealing with um, the rapture and, and the end times. And uh, now he, he kind of deals a little bit with uh, the great tribulation that follows the rapture. Because remember, at the rapture, when Jesus comes, he doesn't land on the earth, he goes back to heaven. 
uh, you know, remember he said to the disciples in John, uh, in John's gospel, that I will come and get you so that where I am, you will be also. So the first coming of Jesus is to take the church back to heaven. It's only later on when he returns and lands on the earth and actually remains. Okay, so let's, let's, let's read verses 1 to 11 now. He says, now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that, you should, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. And so what he's saying is, look, there's no question of having times and dates. No one has the faintest idea when the coming of the Lord is going to be, all right? Because no one has the faintest idea when the rapture is going to occur. It's no one knows. Therefore, any question of prediction is, well, I mean, it's just complete nonsense. And, of course, the point is that when, when this, this, this day of the Lord comes, this, the beginning of this sequence of events, it's judgment on those in darkness and judgment on all the sinfulness that goes on under cover of darkness. But what he says is, look, you... You're believers, you're, you're sons of, of the day, um, sons of light, and therefore should live accordingly. And he says, and of course the point is, when all this judgment comes down upon all, all the sinfulness that's going on, he says, we are not appointed for that judgment. We're not appointed to wrath. There's no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. God's judgment on my sin went on Jesus. God's not going to judge my sin. He judged it in Jesus. So the point is for us, we're not appointed for wrath, be it the great tribulation, be it the great white throne judgment, but we are going to be saved from it. Now he moves on now to final instructions. So we'll just kind of list them really. And these, these kind of instructions are, you know, really important. It's the list of, you know, don't forget this is the way you ought to be. And he says, firstly, he says, respect those who are over you in the Lord. Now, he's talking here about elders. He says, hold them in high regard and hold them in great love because of their work. Now, when it talks about over you in the Lord, that's, that's one of the phrases where, you know, it's almost as if, you know, like your boss at work is over you or something like that. It doesn't actually mean that. It's just the word that means who goes before you. What, who, he's your guide, he's, you know, your leader. There's not that over you creates a hierarchical kind of concept. That's that's not there in the Greek. But nevertheless, he says, look, highly respect them, highly esteem them, okay, because of their work. And he says they are there to admonish you. Now that word admonish is nuthesia, and it literally means a putting in mind. So it's not. It's not meaning admonish as in tell you off, although elsewhere the Bible says that that is part of the function of elders as well. But what it's mean is reminding how to live. So the point is that part of the function of eldership is to all the time be holding people so, so that it's in people's minds what the Lord wants of us. So all the time chivying along and, and making sure everyone is keeping in mind the truth of what the Bible teaches and living according to it, okay. So, says that about elders. Then he says, live in peace with each other. Pretty, pretty good advice there. Warn the idle. Now, that's admonish again. 
So he's saying, with the idol, keep reminding them, you're not meant to be idle. Yeah, you're not meant to be idle. We, we, we should all be occupying ourselves, okay. He says, encourage the timid. You have it again, encourage, timid, timid, fearful, encourage, make bold, give courage to, you see. So again, there are those who are timid. Um, you know, as believers, we're called to, to be bold, you know, be bold, be strong, for the Lord thy God is with me, is with thee and all that. So he says, encourage the timid. Is help the weak, be patient with everyone. And he says, no paying back wrong for wrong, but be kind to each other and be kind to absolutely everybody, okay? And then he says, always be joyful. So the joy of the Christian life there, part of the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, continuously pray and give thanks in all circumstances because that is God's will for you. Now, I just want to actually read that. That, that verse out because it's a great it's a great verse and uh, he uh, on, so I've, I've lost it now uh, six that yes be joyful always pray continually give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus now one of the reasons I just love that verse so much is because obviously you know we all know that you know the thing about God's will, okay. Now, you know, there's a sense in which God's will, revelational guidance, not as straightforward as a lot of people say, um, you know, sort of like potentially dangerous, but nevertheless, if we keep all the safety mechanisms in place, going by scripture, in an abundance of counsellors, their safety, then obviously we can know what God's will is. But there are times when in that sense, you know, oh Lord, what's your will about this, that and the other, and oh goodness, here's a real problem, I don't know which way to go, Lord, show me your will. Well, the one thing you can know is that this is God's will, isn't it? To pray continually, to always give thanks, this is God's will. And, you know, there are times when we can maybe think, oh, Lord, I don't know what your will is, as if that's a big problem. Well, it's not a big problem as long as we're doing this, because then we are doing God's will. And, you know, sort of it is easy to put too much importance on the revelational aspect, that, that guidance aspect of God's will, and not enough, uh, you know, emphasis on stuff that we've simply got written down in the Bible. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, oh, Lord, I want to do your will. Okay, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. So there's something we can be getting on with, even if we're not sure what his will is in regards to other things. Okay. And then he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire, or don't quench the Spirit, as in some translations. And that's talking about, you know, sort of like, you know, don't, you know, sort of make sure that you're not doing anything that is going to prevent people being led by the Spirit. That is important. He says, don't despise prophesying. So he is saying, look, you know, make sure that the, the, the supernatural aspect, guard it. Don't do anything to, to go against it. But of course, then he says, test everything. See, there's the safety. There's the safety. So obviously, to experience the supernatural, gifts of the Spirit, God's guide, subjective guidance, revelational stuff, great. But test everything. What's the test? Conformity with Scripture. And he says, hold on to the good whilst avoiding every kind of evil. And he says that in the context of testing supernatural gifts and that. Because the point is, there is every kind of evil that Satan wants to get in as a counterfeit. Okay. And, uh, you know, remember that whatever God does, Satan wants to get in there as well. So just because something seems revelational, supernatural, or whatever. Don't for one minute assume, therefore it's of the Lord. Could well be demons. And so therefore, test everything. And that's how you can hold on to the good whilst avoiding the evil that Satan's trying to fit in by way of a counterfeit. And then he prays that God would sanctify them through and through. He says, I pray God will sanctify you. He says, spirit, soul, and body. So you can't really get more... Um, you know, sort of comprehensive than that. And he says, and the Lord will do that because he is faithful and because he has called us. And, you know, that, that, that's a, a prayer, you know, 
these, these prayers that, that Paul is saying that he's praying for these people, these are prayers we need to be praying for each other and praying for ourselves as a church. You know, that God will sanctify us. You know, we, we need to be praying like this um, for each other. And then he goes on to request that they pray for him and Silas and Timothy. You know, that, that he needed the prayers of the Thessalonians as well. So everyone praying for everyone. That's, that's you know, kind of, you know, what, what we're called to. And then he said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he says, this letter is to be read to all. It's scripture. Everyone's got to hear it. And as we'll see as we continue, and boy, everyone's got to do it as well. And if they don't, then church discipline, okay. And then he ends by saying, grace with you all. So that was the first letter. Dispatched off. We don't know who took it. Maybe Timothy, maybe Silas, maybe someone else. But the point was, someone took that letter to them. And uh, then presumably, whoever took it, came back to Paul with a report and then Paul, six months later or so, wrote another letter to them by way of follow-up. So, two Thessalonians. Um, Paul was still in Corinth, okay, and uh, so his situation hadn't changed. So, again, um, let's start chapter one. He says, from Paul, Silas and Timothy. So, the same personnel as involved in... Um, the first letter that uh, he wrote. Um, again, he thanks God for their faith and love, just, just like he did in the first time. Um, and, and, and he informs them that their perseverance and faith in the face of persecution had become legendary amongst other churches. I mean, for some reason, the, the, this got, I mean, their reputation is growing and growing and growing. You know, the Thessalonians were almost singled out by being a church that, you know, in, in the midst of persecution, their faith and their love was growing and growing. And, wow, that's, um, that's some testimony, isn't it? And, and Paul says, look, and, and all the persecution that you're going through, he says, that is the evidence that God is with you. He says, that is the evidence that you are being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. I mean, again, it's just, remind, what is the evidence that, I mean, there's, there are many evidences that God is with us, but do you know what one of us is? That there are people who hate us. That's an evidence of God being with us, all right? It's going to happen if we're really faithful to the Lord. And he says, and then you're being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. I mean, Look what Jesus went through. How can the servant follow the master and get an easier ride in that department than the master? I mean, no man has been hated like Jesus. So if we follow him, if we're like him, and remember, why, where does this hatred come from? Where does this persecution come from? Because we become the channel of people being convicted of sins that they are not willing to admit to. And so therefore, it's the age-old thing. You shoot the messenger. See? That's what you do. You can't... You, Robert Lee always used to say, you can't bash God, so you bash whoever he's speaking to you through. See? And so, you know, Paul says, look, this is evidence that God is counting you worthy of uh, the kingdom of God. And he says, but the Lord will bring relief to you and to all believers who are being persecuted. And he says he will deal with and judge your persecutors as well. He says, so don't, don't have any fears about that. He says unbelievers will eventually be fully dealt with at the second coming, at the coming of the Lord. And he says they will be punished everlastingly and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So he says, that's what's going to happen to them. So, you know, the point is, you will be vindicated. There will be vengeance taken out upon these people. And what's interesting in the Bible is that, obviously, we are not to carry out vengeance against those who, do, who, 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 who sin against us, those who hate us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. 
But blow me down, in the New Testament, believers are comforted by the knowledge that God will take vengeance on those people persecuting them. We can't take vengeance on people, but we can be encouraged and comforted knowing that God will take vengeance on those who persecute God's people. Okay, And he says, and on that day, all believers will marvel at the Lord and that he will be glorified in them. Okay, Now, in chapter 2, he, he deals more explicitly with the false teaching about the second coming. And now we can get a little bit more of a clue about the sort of stuff, you know, that was going through, through their heads, okay. And it, it seems to be from this that, that, that all, all mixed in that, that the Thessalonians had, had taken, I mean, you know, the rap, Jesus could come, the rapture could be at any time. Now, that was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. All right. Precisely, if we don't know when it is, if it could be at any moment, that means it might not be for another few hundred years. So the point is they were waiting for the imminent return of Jesus, the same as we are. Now, it seems that what they were doing when Paul wrote the first letter is some of them had got so convinced that it really is going to be any minute now that they weren't working. They were sponging off of people. Well, not directly sponging. They quit work. They didn't have any money, so therefore others were having to look after them. Paul says, no, that's wrong. Complete scandal. So clearly there was something about the imminency of Jesus coming. Now, what happens here is that now it would appear that they actually think that the rapture has happened. It seems that they, they actually think that they've missed the rapture. Now, if we follow Paul's argument to them, and uh, basically what he says is, is this. If I can find it. He says, Now concerning um, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, so it's rapture, we ask you not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy... False prophecy is how Satan gets in. All right, think of all the false prophecy in the charismatic movement around today, and think of all the time. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've seen I've seen a book reduced to half price um, in a Christian bookshop because it was a book written um, to demonstrate that Jesus was going to come back in 1998. In 1999, they reduced it to half price. I mean, you know, you always get people out, you know, prophecy, the, you know, thing. So prophecy, report or letter, supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And he says, don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, let's, let's, let's just sort that out. The, the, the day of the Lord has come. Now, obviously, the day of the Lord in scripture is not in that it's not a day as in a 124 hour day it's a period of time that begins with the rapture the church is removed the great tribulation god's judgments poured out on the earth on unbelieving israel on unbelieving gentiles okay then you get the thousand year reign of jesus after the second coming and then you get the destruction of the universe and the, the great white throne judgment. That is the day of the Lord. It's the day of God's judgment, okay? And so the point is, what Paul's saying, that the day of the Lord has already come, i.e. that the Thessalonians are thinking, crumbs, it started. The rapture has happened. We're still here. We've missed the rapture. Now then, how does Paul convince them that of course they haven't missed the rapture. He says quite simply this. He says, look, okay, so where's the Antichrist then? He says, we know in detail what's going to happen after the rapture happens. I mean, once the rapture's happened, we know that the second coming is seven years away. We have all this detailed prophecy about what's going to happen after the rapture. So Paul says, well, look, if, you, if you're worried that the rapture has happened and you've missed it, he says, well, look around you. Is this the great tribulation? The answer is no, of course it's not. No antichrist, no one world government, uh, you know, sort of no, no false prophet, 
as, as in, you know, the right-hand man to the Antichrist. And so, basically, what Paul does is he simply shows them that it couldn't possibly be the case that the rapture had happened. And indeed, you know, if someone, you know, sort of like, you know, say, say on, on Sunday, Vinci has a prophecy, oh, my children, I, I raptured the church last week and you missed it, <laughs> all right, okay, then, then probably some of us will say, well, actually, don't think so. You know, sort of just got to look out there. It's just the same as it's ever been during the church age. No big changes. And, uh, you know, so the point is that's basically the argument that Paul um, uses with them, okay. If the rapture had happened, the Antichrist will be around. You would immediately see this figure emerging. This, the, I mean, political stuff will happen that would just be unbelievable and uh, you know no way it's going to happen until um, it is actually the great tribulation and uh, so so basically that you know that that's how Paul you know kind of like settles that argument and he basically says he's look don't you remember that we covered all this when I was with you he says we went through all this he says so don't don't be unsettled you know about the end times. You know what's going to happen. So, so don't don't now forget everything that I've I've I, I've taught you, and uh, you know, and go and get all all, all screwed up um, about it. Now, I just want to, you know, sort of read a little because there's there, there's a bit here that's um, very mysterious. Okay, and uh, but I've been having a little think about it. Okay. And uh, let's, let's read from uh, verse 5. He says, look, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? I mean, early believers were well taught the emphasis on teaching in the early church was incredible. I mean, in the Acts of the Apostles, all right, right early on, you know, days after Pentecost, we read that continuously... They remained in the apostles' doctrine, teaching, teaching, teaching. And so Paul, he's writing, he says, oh, eschatology, I covered it all with you, all right? Tremendous emphasis in the early church on, on teaching. And he says, and uh, he says, and now you know what is holding him back, i.e. the Antichrist so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So what Paul is saying there, there is, there is something, and it's a he, who is preventing that time from happening preventing the Antichrist from emerging. And at the rapture, the he, whatever it is, will be taken out. And, you know, sort of like there, I mean, some, you know, there are some people, they say it was the Roman Empire. Um, some people would, would, you know, sort of say that it's the, ho the, pre it's a, the special presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's what the he is. Now, I mean, you know, I've, really been musing on and I don't know, I've got a theory now, right? And I only came up with this this afternoon. I've never heard it before, but by golly gosh, it's certainly my preference over everything else I've heard. It's the church. The he is the church. No, it can't be, because it's definitely the male pronoun here in the Greek. It's he, all right? Well, the ch church is the bride. That's a she, isn't it? Ah, in Ephesians... What does Paul say that God is doing in regards to the Jews and the Gentiles in the church? He's making one new man. So therefore, the Bible certainly talks about the church of Jesus Christ as being the she, i.e. in a bride, but also says it's a he, one new man. Well, I don't know. But certainly we do know that the church is removed, so I, I, I'm just going to, you know, get that in the eschatological, eschatological realms. Yes, that's right. And, uh, yeah, so very possibly it is the church. But whatever this he is, at the rapture, he is removed, and, and then the Antichrist is uh, able to, um, you know, to appear and uh, to, to do his thing, okay? And, of course, Paul goes on to say that he'll set himself up like God, you know, he'll set him up to be like God and, and, and he'll lead a great rebellion against uh, 
the true God. Okay. Um, right, where do we go there? Boom, boom. Yes, and, and he says, yeah, there'll be all these miracles at that time and stuff like that. And, uh, and he says, basically, the world, all unbelievers, will be totally deceived um, because God will hand them over to believe the lie. God will actually, you know, cause them to believe a lie. And the reason is because they, um, they delight in wickedness, okay? And so Paul says, now in the light of all this, therefore, he says, stand firm and hold to the teaching that I've given you, both verbally and in letters. All right. Um, so verbally in letters, again, the New Testament, the letters, New Testament, okay. And it's interesting that when he says stand firm and hold to the teaching that I've given you, the word teaching there in the Greek is pradesis, it's tradition. It's not actual, actually teaching. Teaching would be a different word in the Greek, and that would equate to what you believe, what you believe, be fair enough. But here it's a reference not just to what we believe, but what we do, how we behave the practices we observe. And this is one of the places where we see in command in Scripture that we're to, to, to observe not just the teaching, the doctrine that we see in Scripture, but where to observe the practices of the apostles as well. And obviously this is where church life becomes, you know, sort of like so important because in the New Testament their church life practice was virtually the opposite to what it became under the early church fathers. And so here, here is a clear statement in Scripture that we are to observe the practices that the apostles passed on, not just the doctrine, okay? And, um, and then he says that he continues to thank God for them. He says because they were chosen from the beginning to be saved and sanctified by the Holy Spirit and by believing the truth and then sharing in his glory. Now, that's, that's an interesting... Let's break that down. There's another little three-pointer there, okay? That they've been chosen from the beginning to be saved. Now, there's past salvation, justification, justified. And then he said, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit and by believing the truth. So there's present salvation, sanctification, deliverance, not from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And look, how does that happen? Yeah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but by believing the truth, the truth of Scripture. Do you remember, I think last week we were talking about it, weren't we? Uh, when Jesus prayed that, the, um, you know, that his people would be sanctified, and he said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth you see. So that tie-up there, sanctification, can only be to the extent that we're actually living according to Scripture and the Holy Spirit bringing that into our actual experience so that we're being delivered all the time from the power of sin. And then he says, and then share his glory. Now, it's future salvation. That one day we're going to be set free from the very presence of sin in our lives because we'll have a glorified body. So there's the there's the, the salvation past, present, and future. And that was very much the verse, if you remember, or what is about all 20 years ago, 22 years ago, that, that was the verse we based the whole uh, salvation series on, wasn't it? So there you've got it, justification, sanctification, and glorification, the past, present, and future aspects of uh, salvation, being set free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And then he prays, that God who loves him and his companions and who had given internal encouragement and hope to them would likewise encourage and strengthen the Thessalonians in every good deed and word. So he, he's praying that in the same way that he had experienced the encouragement and the, 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 the strengthening of, of God in his life to overcome, he prays that they would experience that as well. And then in, in chapter 3, he asks again for their prayers for him spreading the gospel. He did that in the first letter. So we see that, I mean, you know, in some ways, you know, sort of like these two letters, they're, they're, they're kind of like they're half, in, you know, giving information, but they're half 
him simply telling them what his prayers are for them, in effect. And, uh, you know, so, so a lot of the letters are him saying, this is what I'm praying for you, this is my prayer for you guys. But he's saying as well in each letter, but you must be praying for me, you know. Paul knew that he needed the prayers of others quite as much as others needed his prayers. And he says, so pray for, for, for me in the spreading of the gospel and that I might be delivered from wicked and evil men. And he assures them again of God's faithfulness and he says, look, the Lord will strengthen them and protect them from the evil one, i.e. from Satan. And he says, he tells them that he's confident that they will continue in his teaching and be obedient to it. And again, there you have it. Paul, he, he was the, the mother who was gentle with them, but he was the father who all the time urged them on to be obedient to the Lord and obedient to the truth and the teaching and the practices that he had passed on to them. And remember in the first letter, he said, everything I said, all the, everything I taught you to do, he said it was the authority of Jesus. And again, this is why you can never separate the authority of Jesus from the authority of the Bible. Because remember, you know, that Jesus said, look, they who reject you, talking to the apostles, they reject me. The only way that we can serve the Lord is by being obedient to the teachings that he gave his apostles. And they are the basically in the New Testament for us. And so that's how, that's how all that we grow in the Lord by growing in obedience to his word and through that becoming more and more into a relationship with him and knowing him personally more and more, okay? And then he prays that the Lord would direct their hearts into God's love. That's, that's a lovely thought, isn't it? To direct your heart into God's love. Like, there's God's love, this sea of God's love. It's like our hearts are a submarine and the Lord's steering us just through his love, just... Elsewhere, Paul talks about knowing what the, the, the length and the breadth and the height of God's love is. And, you know, like that love of Jesus is so wonderful that we often sing on, you know, on the Sundays. So high you can't get over it. So low you can't get under it. So wide you can't get round it. And it's a lovely thought, you know, that God could be directing our hearts more and more into his love. And Paul says, and into the perseverance of Christ. And notice in this letter there's a theme, the love of God and perseverance. Love, perseverance. Because at the end of the day, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But to obey his commands, we've got to go through persecution. And so perseverance, that keeping going, it, it's the ultimate sign of, of people who truly do love the Lord, that they keep going, that perseverance, all right. And then he turns, and he's, you know, we're coming to the end of the letter now, he deals with some of the practical issues, and he turns to those who are refusing to work, you know, this rapture problem stuff, and he says, look, you've got to deal with these guys, all right. Um, he says, look, we, we, we weren't idle when we were with you, and he says, our example must prevail. Remember, the Thessalonians have been commanded to imitate Paul and his team. Everything Paul taught them and showed them, that's what they should be doing. Well, Paul and his team were not idle, all right? They didn't sit around all day doing nothing and then got bored and so became busybodies. So Paul says, look, these guys have got to follow our example. And he lays down a rule. And it's a simple rule. If a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. So what he's saying is, because these guys weren't working, they weren't bringing in money. Because they weren't bringing in money, they couldn't put bread on their table. So what was happening? Other Christians were feeding them. And Paul says, no, stop. Let them, let them starve. If you, if you feed someone like that, you're condoning their sin. So Paul says, no, if they won't work, they won't eat. And, of course, that would solve the problem. Of course, they'll go out and get a job because no one else is going to provide for them. And he says, look, idlers become busybodies. That's a dreadful thing, to be a busybody. And he says, look, such a commanded to settle down and to earn their own bread. Simple as that, okay. And so he says, look, no one should tire of doing what's right. He says, now, come on, and these guys, you've got to deal with them, all right? You've got to make sure that they're working. And then he says, I'll actually read this last bit, because 
it's one of those verses that you virtually never ever <laughs> hear read out or taught on at any rate because it's one of the verses that is just too tough and uh, Paul says um, oh I'm in 1 Thessalonians and Paul says um, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter take special note of him do not associate with him this is church discipline in order that he may feel ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, because church discipline is not saying someone's not a Christian, but warn him as a brother. Church discipline is to bring the person into right relationship with the Lord, to bring them to deliverance from whatever sin it is. And so Paul says, right, okay, look, that is what you've got to do, okay. But not treat as an enemy. Church discipline isn't that, but it's, it's, it's making that person pay a terrible price for the sin they're hanging on to. And that price is that they lose all their friends, that suddenly they're... They're, they're not related to. The people in their church family won't anymore have anything to do with them until such time as they have put that sin right. Okay. And then he says, uh, he prays that the God of peace will give them peace at all times and in every way. And then he gives um, his, his final greeting. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Paul didn't write his own letters. He, he always had a, an amanuensis. That great word, isn't it? That means someone who writes a letter for you, but it's a great word. Um, good to slip in at interviews and things like that. Um, and, uh, and he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So uh, there you go, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And uh, obviously, I'm, I'm still trying to get anti-disestablishmentarianism in a study, but I haven't worked <laughs> out how to yet.